if we can all come in and find a place and maybe somebody call out into the highways and this morning. Um, I didn't realize in advance that I was going to be out a couple of times in May, so sorry for the jumping around from doctrine back into this doctrine. We're coming back to the doctrine of God this morning, and then I'm going to be at a conference next week. And so Bill Treby, who has handled and done justification, sanctification teaching uh, for the Doctrines of Grace class, uh, he's going to come and bring the Doctrine of Salvation, part one, next week, and then I'm going to come back and do Doctrine of God, part three. So I, it, may, it may be hard to believe, but I'm not trying to confuse you. It's just happening uh, that way. So I'm sorry for not seeing all that stuff in advance and being able to plan for it. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray before we get rolling, and we'll commit our time to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher. And so we, uh, your, your people, want to come and bring our whole selves before you, God, our minds, our hearts. We don't want to just be informed about truth, Lord. We want truth to penetrate us, to change us, uh, to affect our perspective on life, to affect our attitudes so that we might live in a way that brings you glory. So help us this morning to understand these things, to plunge into the the depths of your knowledge and your wisdom. Insofar as we can, we know we're going to be way out of our depth, but Lord, help us to stand amazed at your knowledge and your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two weeks ago, we looked at God's moral attributes uh, under the attributes of goodness, which was basically seeking to answer the question, what is God like? And this morning, our attention turns to the question, what does God know? And you might immediately just say, well, God knows everything. Let's go home. I mean, we don't really need to go too far into that. It's pretty simple. And it is. God does know everything. It really is that simple. He knows everything. And, and yet, I, th- I think we're going to discover before we're done this morning that some challenges arise when we begin to talk about God's knowledge. And some challenges arise in at least two different kinds of categories. One would be biblical texts. There would be passages that on a, on an initial reading might give one the impression that God doesn't know certain things, that God doesn't know certain things about the future. And so we need to look at and consider those texts. The second thing would be the relationship of doctrines to one another because doctrines affect each other. When you change this and this doctrine, you might not realize that it's actually changing other doctrines as well. Doctrines are all interrelated. So to change one is to change It's kind of like a Rubik's Cube. Anybody grew up doing Rubik's Cube? Well, if you're just focused on getting one face blue, then you don't know how a Rubik's Cube works because you have to pay attention to what's happening with all the sides. When you change this and you got... Uh, you're, you're moving toward a certain color. You're not realizing you're messing up all the other stuff that you were accomplishing on those other faces. So doctrine is kind of that way. As a matter of fact, Paul, just to give you one illustration, Paul says to Corinthians at the end of his first letter, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I know you guys love the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. You unfortunately don't like the doctrine of the bodily resurrection And what you haven't realized is when you denied the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, 
you took the foundation out from under your doctrine of forgiveness. You can't get forgiveness if there's no resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. You were only focused on one side of the Rubik's Cube and you lost it because you compromised another doctrine and didn't realize that thing touched back on your favorite idea. So doctrines are related. When we talk about the the doctrine of what God knows, of God's knowledge, it's going to have an immediate bearing on lots of things. On our view of God's immutability, his unchangeability. Does anybody need a pen? We've got pens being held up back there in the back. If you need a pen, it can come to you. (coughs) Sorry. Uh, So it can have a bearing on our our knowledge of God's immutability, our understanding of, of what it means that God doesn't change. It's going to affect our view of the nature of prophecy. And when you read prophetic material in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's going to affect how you view that, depending on what your view of God's knowledge is. It's going to affect your view of God's sovereignty and salvation. It's going to affect your view of God's providence over history and over the world. It's going to affect your view of man's free will. All those things are touched by what we conclude about God's knowledge and what he knows. So our approach this morning is basically to ask, what does the Bible tell us about God's knowledge? And our first point is God knows himself. And this may seem like the ultimate no-brainer, but it is an amazing thing that God knows himself comprehensively because God is infinite. God is infinite, and God's knowledge can run the distance of his infinity. It can run the distance. God comprehends his infinite power. He comprehends his infinite mercy, his infinite love. He fully comprehends as though they were finite to him because he's infinite. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the spirit of the man which is in him? so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So Paul, writing in Romans, and he's, you know, this is the Mount Everest of the New Testament. Romans chapters 9 through 11 is this thick and powerful and mysterious presentation of the sovereignty of God in all of salvation history. And Paul has just written all of this and his mind, humanly speaking, has got to be reeling <laughs> and, and just flipping over and over and over. And he bursts out in doxology at the end of Romans 11 and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out how inscrutable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord and the answer to that humanly speaking is no one knows the mind of the Lord for his thoughts are above our thoughts as high as the heavens are above the earth so great are his thoughts above our thoughts and so we realize who can understand the mystery of God's saving work in all of history and from our perspective we say no one can but that's not the only answer the other biblical answer is God knows the mystery of his will. God comprehends all of those things. God knows the depth of the riches of his own wisdom and his own knowledge. Now, by contrast, you think about our own lives. I mean, I'm, I'm 35. I've been living 35 years in this body, 35 years of introspection, and I don't even know myself. 
35 years of thinking, 35 years of looking in the mirror, I don't even know when my eyes changed from blue to green. They did at some point, but I don't know when that happened. I just know now I go in and if I get my license renewed, I say green, whereas before I said blue. I don't know when that happened. I just found out this year. This year, I just found out that I can palm my basketball with my left hand and not with my right hand. 35 years. My hands haven't changed size in half my life. You would think I would have known that about myself, but that just shows us we are finite, and yet we can't even comprehend ourselves. God is infinite, and he fully comprehends himself. That that is a wondrous and amazing thing. God's infinite knowledge fully comprehends his infinite being and his infinite character. Next, God knows all things past and present. All things that exist and all things that happen are fully known by God. So knowledge of all things and events. Look at these verses, Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. No creature is hidden. All are laid bare. There's not a creature on the planet that God is not fully aware of right now. Every insect every dust mite. God is fully aware of everything in his creation. Those dust mites are laid bare before their creator. (laughs) For he looks, Job says, he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. What an amazing God. And this verse has leveraged comfort, has it not, for so many believers. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, Jesus says. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head, all are numbered. Fear not, therefore. In light of God's knowledge, fear not. You are of more value (coughs) than many sparrows. So God knows everything that he has created. There's not a flower in a field in the world. There's not a blade of grass that God doesn't know exactly how much it's grown in the past hour. God is fully aware. There's not a maverick, R.C. Sproul says, there's not a maverick molecule in all of creation. God is fully aware of his world. There's not a demon who's able to sneak around or oppress us secretly. God knows through and through. And he doesn't know these things simply by working at them and trying to remember them. He's not reviewing index cards of creation. He simply knows everything all at once, all the time. I love this quote from Wayne Grudem. Our definition of God's knowledge speaks of God knowing everything in one, quote, simple act. Here again, the word simple is used in the sense of (coughs) not divided into parts. This means that God is always fully aware of everything. If he should wish, this is great, if he should wish to tell us the number of grains of sand on the seashore or the number of stars in the sky, he would not have to count them all quickly like some kind of giant computer. Nor would he have to call the number to mind because it was something he had not thought about for a time. Rather, He always knows all things at once. He does not have to reason to conclusions or ponder carefully before he answers. For he knows the end from the beginning and he never learns and never forgets anything. Wow. 
God is awesome. God's knowledge is an awesome, truly an awesome thing. Not only does he know all things and events in kind of a general way, general knowledge of his created world and specific knowledge into that created world, but he knows personal aspects, all personal aspects of our lives, our actions and our thoughts. Psalm 139. (coughs) O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Once again, as we saw with God's moral attributes, so it is with God's attributes of knowledge. Everything that God is has a a potential for comfort and a potential for fear. Um, The fact that God is good, we saw, also means that God is just. The fact that God is loving also means that God is jealous. So depending on our orientation to this God who is great and this God who knows and this God who is good and just, depending on our orientation to this God, we will either find these attributes wonderful beyond comprehension or fearful, terrifying. It's almost like police lights. Police lights, depending on what you're doing when the lights are going off, can either be a great comfort to you if you're about to be attacked in an alley And you hear the police sirens and you go, oh, thank you, Lord, the police are here. Or if you're the one who is just, as Aaron said last week, if you're the one who's in the middle of the act of burglary and you hear police sirens, it's a completely different feeling now, isn't it? And so the same thing can have different effects on different people. As it said, the same sun that, that melts butter hardens clay. And so it is with God. There is an attribute. You can hold it up and say it's wonderful. Well, not if you don't respect and revere God. His knowledge becomes something terrifying. He knows us, and that is not necessarily a good thing if we're living in rebellion and wickedness. So, omniscience and comfort. Often God comforts his people by reminding them of his knowledge. So frequently in in the prophetic books where God comes to his people and he says, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. His knowledge, and he goes on and talks about what he knows, what his wisdom is, how far it runs, what God's knowledge is, and that's meant to be a comfort. Matter of fact, the classic comfort text in Isaiah 40, this is the one that Handel wrote the song, Comfort Ye My People. Um, and provide for them that mourn in Zion. That classic text is about God's knowledge of the future, God's knowledge of their lives. So it is a comforting thing. Psalm 139, what we, what we just read, how much comfort is in those words, especially to those who are in trials. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. There's this thoroughgoing knowledge that God has of his people. Before my dad died, those of you who may know, my dad died. He was a pastor of a small church just a few blocks from here, and he died when I was 12. Before he died, he would very frequently, spontaneously, call up Sister Melinda Taylor 
And Sister Melinda, I sat next to her every Sunday during worship because my mom played the organ. And that's how I learned to sing harmony because Sister Melinda only sang alto in every song during worship. And so I'd sit next to Sister Melinda and we'd both be singing alto. And he would just spontaneously say, Sister Melinda, come on up. I want you to sing. And he'd call my, my mom up and she'd play the organ in a company and she'd sing His Eyes on the Sparrow. And that was one of my dad's favorite songs. Now, if you know that song, how many of you know that song? I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. What is that song getting done for God's people? Why does that song stir the heart? It stirs the heart because it reminds us that God knows. God is fully aware of our lives and in trials. And so many of the verses are talking about trials. Let not your hearts be troubled. These tender words I hear resting on his goodness, his promise. I lose my doubts and fears. Essentially, it's a meditation on Matthew 10. He knows the sparrows. How much more does he know? He tracks, he's aware of your life. You're not lost in the shuffle. He is perfectly aware. How many of us as parents, we, we love our children beyond description. We cannot put into words how much we love our children. And yet we know, and this is, this is unsettling for us, we cannot protect them, can we? No matter how much we love them, we cannot protect them from everything. And the, one of the fundamental reasons we can't is because we simply don't know enough. I don't know when they're outside playing that there's a car coming down the street and somebody's falling asleep at the wheel. I don't know. I don't know that there's someone who's very sick at the sporting event, and that person's going to transfer that sickness, and it's going to end up being a huge problem. And I can't protect them. I could protect them much better if I only knew exhaustively everything in the world. Not so with God. God can make promises to us that he's going to keep us all the way to the end, that he's going to see us safely home, because he knows He completely, comprehensively, exhaustively knows everything and is able, therefore, to protect his children in the most fundamental and important ways. It doesn't mean he's going to protect us like an overbearing, overprotective parent from all hurt. It doesn't mean he's going to protect us from all uh, the humbling situations of life that cause us to cling to him. He's not going to protect us from all suffering, but he's going to protect our faith so that even when it's a smoking flax, he won't put it out. He will see to it that we are protected and that all of his children make it safely home. So when he makes that promise, you can take it to the bank. He is not like the best of parents. He knows us through and through. And this is great comfort to us. Omniscience and fear. On the other hand, there is a way in which God's knowledge of people is anything but comforting. And there are some people in Scripture who live as though God were blind or ignorant or indifferent to the things that they are doing and saying in his presence. Psalm 94, the psalmist frequently prays in this kind of way, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt, gloat? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, listen, 
The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. And listen, hear the words from God. Understand, O dullest of the people. Don't believe those lies. Don't believe pagan theology. Dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Well, several years ago, my wife and I were playing hide-and-seek with our nephew, Alex, who's going to graduate next year, which is freaky. We're playing hide-and-seek in Florida, in their house, and he's, he's three years old, maybe. And he, you know, we go and we hide in the corner. We put our face in the corner against the wall, and we start counting. And you can just hear him clodding feet straight across the floor. You know exactly where he's going. He goes to the same place every time. He goes, runs across the floor, and I had to find out what this thing is called, but it's, it, they have sheer curtains, these, these translucent, right? You can see straight through them, and he hides right behind the sheer curtains. And uh, we, <laughs> we turn around, and he's just standing there, looking right at us, smiling from ear to ear, motionless. <laughs> Has no idea. We can see you. I can see the color of all your clothes. I can see you. I know exactly where you are. And then I think of Jonah. Think of Jonah. And I'm not going to stay above decks. I'm going to go below decks. Because God can't see below decks. You know? I mean, there's all that wood right there. Now, this is, this is you know, can, can the God who made the eye not see? Can he not see? And we hide behind the sheer curtain of whatever it is that's going on in our lives as though God can't see. The evil hide behind the sheer curtain as though God doesn't know. And he knows us through and through, and his eyes pierce through everything. We are laid bare before him with whom we have to do. And this is a sobering thing. You think about the evil who pounce on innocent people in darkness. You think about tyrannical governments that subjugate entire people groups and execute them. And then you tremble because you realize God knows. God knows. And those are fearful words. God knows and God remembers. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 2, there are these wonderful statements about Israel crying out before God. And the text says a number of things, very short things about God and his response. They cried out and the text says God heard their cry. He remembered his covenant. He saw the people of Israel. And the last words in chapter 2 are, and God knew. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. And those words he knew were very good news for Israel. And those words simultaneously were very bad news for their oppressors. God knew, and he was coming. Matter of fact, the very next verse in chapter 3, verse 1, talks about Moses. He's raising up a deliverer to go and rescue his crying and hurting people. Now, this brings us to God's knowledge of the future. God knows all things future. Now, there's some controversy that encircles this particular doctrine, and it's related to, I'm going to try to define some of these terms, a belief that's called open theism. 
in a word, there are some today who do not believe that God has exhaustive knowledge, perfect knowledge of the future. Um, and I, I used to embrace this position. Uh, I became convinced that this was the right position when I was about 20, and I believed it for a couple of years and really paraded for it and evangelized for open theism. And I have some very close friends, very close friends, who believe this. Um, and I have utmost respect for their love for God, and yet I believe they are sorely mistaken and that this is not a small matter. The matter of the doctrine of what God knows is huge. And I hope that we're going to see that to deny God perfect, not just some access to future knowledge, but perfect and comprehensive knowledge of all things in the future, including the actions of people, is to hurl a great insult at the majesty of God. So you might... You might ask, why would anyone move away from the belief that God knows the future? Um, Well, it depends on what you view as the central, most clear teaching of Scripture. And for any of us, that's kind of the way that we tend to do theology. You read something in the Bible and it occurs over and over and over and over and over and it seems that this is more clear than anything else. And so you lock down really strong on that truth. And if it seems like, as often is the case, if it seems like there might be a verse that if you interpret that verse in a superficial way, that verse actually seems to militate against what seems to be true and central in the rest of the Bible, well, you're going to go to that verse and kind of interpret and say, is there another way to read this verse other than the way that it seems to read on the surface? Because this seems really clear, so I'm going to make these verses conform to what is most clear. That happens all the time in theology. The deal is, Open theism regards as central and most important a particular view of the free will of man. And if that is what is most clear in the Bible, then we need to interpret other texts in light of that which is most clear. And their particular version of free will is not simply that you do what you want. (coughs) The definition of free will, it's sometimes called libertarianism or libertarian freedom. And What's meant by that is the power to do otherwise. That's how they would define freedom, the power to do otherwise. Now, that's kind of abstract, so let me try to illustrate what that means. How you sat where you're sitting right now. You all came into this room freely, right? That's not a trick question. You you came in voluntarily. You weren't at gunpoint. Nobody forced you to come in. You came in freely of your own accord, And then once you came in, you looked at the tables and you made a decision, right? Which table you were going to sit at. Now, it might have been related to the table you sat at last week. But at some point, you came in and all that was brand new and fresh. You came in and you voluntarily, you could have sat at a different table than you sat at last week. You decided to sit at the table you're at right now. And not only that, as you approached the table, you had to make another decision. What chair are you going to sit in at this table? There are eight to ten of them. Which one are you going to pick and why? You're making all these decisions without necessarily being you know, super conscious about it. It's just happening and you're choosing those kinds of things. Well, I think that the Bible would call that free will. That's freedom. You came in when you wanted. You sat where you wanted and you've stayed this long if you wanted. Right? That, those are things that you have desired voluntarily. You've done them. 
That, I think, is what the Bible means, and no more, when it talks about our freedom or our responsibility. (coughs) Now, open theists want to press that further. They want to ask you a couple of more questions. What if your choice to sit in that chair had already been determined? What if it were impossible for you to sit in any other chair? And you might say, well, how would it be impossible? Well, if God knew perfectly in advance that you were going to sit in that chair, let's say at 5 o'clock this morning, an angel wanted God to show him how omniscient he is, and an angel goes upright. This is kind of a crass illustration, but go with me. And the angel says, Lord, show me how awesome your foreknowledge is again. And they give the Lord a schematic of this room with all the tables and all the chairs. And, and the angel says, tell me where Sherry Meyer is going to sit. Now the Lord, does he know at 5 o'clock this morning that Sherry Meyer is going to sit right there? Yes. And so he puts an X where? He puts an X in the chair she's sitting in right now. Now, libertarian freedom wants to say that when Sherry Meyer comes in, she is so free to choose her chair that she can pick a different chair than the one that God knew she was going to pick in advance because she is that free. Nothing's determining which chair she's going to pick, not even the knowledge of God, not even the X. And so therefore, if Sherry Sherry chooses another chair, then God was what? Wrong. It was a really good guess because she sat there last week or based on precedent or based on her personality and where she likes to sit. She likes to be up close or whatever. God knows all those things perfectly, but he can't absolutely tell you the future. One, because open theists say the future doesn't exist for it to even be known. The future is made by our present choices, and therefore there is no future to know with respect to man's free choices. So those who believe in libertarian freedom think that if something's going to be truly done freely, it can't be known in advance. And if something is known perfectly in advance, then it can't be done with freedom. Now, as an open theist, I didn't just think philosophically about this. I thought that there were passages in the Bible that that argued for this as well. So let me give you a couple of pillar texts, and then we'll try to wrestle with this for the rest of our time. (coughs) For example, Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And I would have said then that the most natural explanation for grief is God didn't know for sure that this is how it was going to pan out. He rolled the dice, as some popular writers say even today. He rolled the dice when he made Adam and Eve and put them in the garden with a serpent and, and a law and one law to obey. And he rolled the dice and it turned out that he got, gets there in Genesis 6 and he's grieving. <coughs> Another would be Jonah. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. <coughs> and the people of Nineveh believed God. So, it's, I would have argued God calls Jonah to go and not to preach repentance. Seems like God tells them, tells Jonah, just go and tell him, I'm going to nuke this place in 40 days. Just telling you, just serving notice in 40 days, Nineveh, kaboom, right? And yet, the future turned out differently. 
because Jonah went and proclaimed kaboom in 40 days, and the people, wonder of wonders, turned and repented. And so, you know, so then God decided, all right, well, in mercy, I'm going to go ahead and, and bring them in and not uh, destroy the place. <coughs> Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. This is when Abraham's got the knife up, right, about to sacrifice his son. Here I am. He's, he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Huh. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham is asked to offer Isaac. He raises the knife and he stopped and he hears the words, Abraham, don't hurt the boy. Now I know that you fear God. Now I know. If God knew beforehand, if God knew before Abraham raised the knife, why, I would ask, why would he say, now I know? You can see, if you read some of these texts, on, initially, they almost give you the impression that God found out that Abraham feared him when the knife was coming down and he stopped him. Jeremiah 7.31, they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters <coughs> in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. I would have said, I would have pointed to those words and say, here's my interpretation, call me a simpleton. But when it says that those things didn't come into God's mind, my understanding is it didn't come into God's mind. He didn't know that that degree of idolatry was going to be practiced, that people would actually come to the place where they're, where they're sacrificing their own children on the fire. Now, we're going to talk about how to respond to each of those in a moment, but I don't want our initial step into the biblical presentation of God's foreknowledge to be a rebuttal to open theist arguments. So first we're going to do a kind of positive treatment of what the Bible says because the Bible upholds a thoroughgoing doctrine of the foreknowledge of God. The Bible is very clear. God knows everything, everything in the future. He knows the future as well as the past, and that is very, very clear in Scripture. And I wish we had an hour to look at Scripture on this issue, but I'll just bring a couple of different arguments. First of all, <coughs> the test of a true prophet was that he was, what he said about the future would certainly come to pass, correct? And if it didn't, what was to be the verdict about that prophet? He was a false prophet. He couldn't have been sp speaking from God because, because it would have come to pass. And it would have come to pass, why? Because God knows the future, certainly. Therefore, I mean, imagine if the open theists were right, how scary of a job it is to be a prophet. You know, God is calling you to go and proclaim what's about to happen in the future, and then you find out an open theist pulls you aside and teaches you, and you find out God doesn't know for sure. And if you're wrong about what God has told you uncertainly about the future, if you're wrong, you'll be executed. That's not the kind of job you'd want to apply for. The reason that the prophets proclaim boldly is because they knew God knows the future. Up one side and down the other. Deuteronomy 18. <coughs> and if you say in your heart, how may we know? That's, this is, what's the litmus test of a true prophet? How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? <coughs> when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord. If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. 
The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. This clearly assumes that the God who's speaking to this prophet about the future knows the future with absolute certainty. He is not guessing based on trends. He's not forecasting history based on what's kind of going on right now. He knows it. And, and the prophecies of the Bible, as we know, don't play it safe. They get very specific. They're loaded with specifics. Not only that, the specifics <coughs> often involve free decisions of human beings. In other words, it's not just a prophecy that a storm is going to strike or some part of inanimate creation is going to do a certain thing. They're prophecies about what people are going to say, sometimes with the exact words that are going to be said. So it's prophecy involving human beings going places and saying things. Samuel, for example, tells King Saul, you're going to meet two men, not one man, not one man, not three men. You're going to meet two men who will tell you that, who will tell him that their lost donkeys have been found. His lost donkeys have been found. Then he will meet three men going to Bethel, carrying. Here's what those guys decided voluntarily that morning to bring. Right? They didn't feel like they were under coercion that morning. Should we bring two goats, four goats, three goats? We'll bring three goats. Felt like a free decision, right? Three goats. They're going to also have three loaves of bread. They're going to have a skin of wine. And it goes on more and more details. Now, if you imagine and you're into that moment, think about the kinds of ways that you think about when you're going to the mall, who you're going to go with, which purse you're going to bring with you, which direction, where are you going to park? Are you going to go right or go left, toward Macy's, toward this? You're making all those decisions voluntarily. And yet, God here in this moment says, All those guys are going to be making their own decisions about how many goats, how many loaves of bread, all of that, and yet I know it perfectly. Think about how many free decisions God knew about in order to tell Saul just like that. The Bible is full of detailed prophecies. (laughs) Lands that will be occupied by God's people, military campaigns and their outcomes, prophecy that God's people would be enslaved in Egypt and how long they would be enslaved in Egypt, who would betray Christ, Peter's threefold, not twofold, not fourfold, threefold denial of Jesus, along with the time of day and what the near, nearby animals would be doing right, before the cock crows. Well, what if that cock gets a hankering to crow earlier? And then Peter denies him two times. Then God was wrong, but that's not what happened. God was right about all kinds of things that seem random. Hundreds of prophecies. Isaiah, this is staggering. Isaiah prophesied just about one person, Cyrus. (coughs) The birth of Cyrus, his name, his conquest, his rule, his character, and numerous free decisions of the man who would become the king of Persia. Guess what? A hundred years later, Cyrus wasn't even born when these specific prophecies about all kinds of, quote, free decisions of Cyrus. And they were voluntary. He was under no coercion. That's the mystery of divine foreknowledge. He knows them perfectly in advance. Not only is God's knowledge of the future a test of the true prophet, it is a test of the true God. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but I think the most powerful biblical text on the issue of God's foreknowledge, many of them are found in Isaiah. I put that C also, those other texts. (coughs) But listen to this passage. 
Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. In other words, God presents not only as the litmus test of a prophet, he puts his deity on the line. He says, ask your idol, stand before your little carved image or Baal or Ashtoreth, stand before them and ask them a simple question. Tell me what happens tomorrow. Tell me what happens. Do you know a guy named Cyrus? Tell me a little bit about Cyrus. What's going to happen 100 years from now when Cyrus is born? Did you even know his name? God says, ask your idols that question. And if your idols give the answer, your idols are, ding, 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 God. And if your idol can't give the answer, your idol is not God. What's the assumption underneath all of that? That one's claim to God is validated by one's comprehensive, exhaustive knowledge of everything in the future. God knows all things, and he puts his deity on the line. He says, this is how I'm going to prove that I'm God. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. And so it is sobering to think that I used to deny to God the very thing that he uses as proof that he is God. This is no small matter. I deeply regret believing that truth, and I even more deeply regret winning people to it and then trying to win them out of it and not being effective. They still believe that God is ignorant about the future, that God cannot know the future. So how do we understand the text that seem to imply a lack of foreknowledge? Let's talk about some brief responses to open theism. Genesis 6, 6, can an omniscient God grieve? Grief and sorrow does not imply ignorance of the future. And there are hundreds of ways that we could illustrate that. Maybe one that would be accessible and right within reach would be a father. A father who hears a diagnosis of his child. His child is diagnosed with some serious illness and is told with certainty that the child is not going to live more than two years. Now, the father, if you will, okay, don't, don't bring in kind of doctrine miracles and all that stuff. Let, let's just, just for the sake of illustration, the father knows the future. The father knows the boy's got two years or less. Now, 18 months later, when his son dies and he's grieving, does anybody say, what are you grieving for? You knew two years ago that this was going to happen. Of course no one says that. Because just because you know something's going to happen in advance doesn't mean you're not going to grieve when the experience happens. Just because God knew that Genesis 6 was going to happen and he was going to stand before a world full of sin and idolatry and wickedness and murder doesn't mean that God wasn't going to come to that moment in real history and grieve that this was the case. It doesn't imply open theists read into Genesis 6 in ignorance of the future and say God's grieving because he didn't know this was going to happen. That's not the only way to understand that and it's not the right way to understand that. Jonah 3.4, did Nineveh's responsiveness surprise God? Well, the reality is many prophecies in the Bible are conditional. Many prophecies, even if they don't explicitly 
show that they're conditional. If they don't say, if you do this, then this is going to happen. Think about it this way. <coughs> Actually, there's, a, there's a, a key text, I believe it's in Ezekiel, that makes this very clear, where God says, look, if I promise a good thing to a nation and that nation turns in idolatry, I will relent of the good that I was going to do to that nation and I will judge them and discipline them. On the other hand, the prophet writes, under divine inspiration, if I promise calamity against the nation and that nation repents, I'll relent of the calamity I was going to bring in that nation and will restore. So there's a sense in which I think that that text helps us see that prophecies have a conditional kind of nature to them because God wants a repentant people. So where do we go with, with Jonah? Think about, think about God's actions in the Jonah narrative. If God simply wanted to destroy Nineveh, what would he have done? He would have nuked Nineveh. Why send Jonah to tell them the bomb's going to fall in 40 days if their response makes no difference whatsoever? Another thing is open theists don't give God as much credit as the text gives Jonah. Jonah even knows when you come to the end of it, Jonah even knew what God was doing in this. He said, I knew, and he's bitter about it, but he says, you know what? I knew when you called me to go to Nineveh, you were going to save those people. I knew it. You were getting me to preach and to warn them, in 40 days you'll be destroyed, and yes, they would have been destroyed had they not repented. But you knew when you asked me to go there, I was aware you were going to be a God of mercy to Nineveh. And I didn't like it all the way to Nineveh. Even Jonah knew that the reason God is calling you to go is because God's not just going to nuke the place. God is going to send Jonah to preach and God's going to bring revival in Nineveh. All of that was known by God before it happened. There are many places in Scripture where God uses a prophet as a means of bringing about his purpose. In Genesis 22, 11 and 12, <coughs> did God learn something about Abraham when the knife was raised? Think about what God said to Abraham when, when Abraham lifted the knife. He said, now I know that you fear me. Now, if we read this the way open theists do, not only does God lack knowledge of the future, what does he lack knowledge of? The present. Didn't God know all the way, along the way? You fear me. God knows, the, open theists don't deny it, that God knows the state of our hearts through and through. He knows right now whether I'm rebellious against God in my heart, putting up a front, or whether I genuinely fear God. He is aware of that right now. Now, even if, think about it, even if we were looking, if we were kind of a fly on the wall, and we watched God give the command to Abraham, Abraham wakes up the next morning, shakes Isaac. Isaac, go get a bundle of wood. He goes into his room. He grabs the knife. He's wiping tears from his eyes. He walks, beginning to ascend the hill. He passes some men. He says, the boy and I will return. And later parts of scripture say that God knew what Abraham meant when he said that. What Abraham meant when he said that is, even if the boy dies, God's gonna raise him from the dead because he's a child of promise. God knew Abraham feared him as he was walking up the hill. He was perfectly aware of the state of Abraham's heart. God knew as they ascended the hill. God knew as Abraham raised the knife. So what is going on here? 
This was not about God learning things about Abraham's character. Again, if God literally didn't know that Abraham feared him, we have bigger problems than God just not knowing the future. We are led to doubt not only his knowledge of the future, but of the present as well. God frequently uses human analogies, human metaphors, human language to describe his actions and his character. So, for example, when, when the Bible tells us or a passage tells us that God looked down from heaven, that doesn't mean that God has eyeballs. It also doesn't mean that heaven is like a balcony over the top of the earth over which God looks into the world, right? We can take these things too far. They're metaphors. It's human language to get at things that human language can't fully describe, namely God, who is not a man. Now, when he says, now I know, this is a post-exam evaluation, much like a rite of passage, where I might say to my son, after giving him some particular set of responsibilities, and he might execute those responsibilities, and I say, now I know you're a man. A rite of passage. This language isn't about making a new discovery of Abraham's character as much as identifying a transitional moment in the relationship. Something concrete has happened in history, and I'm drawing attention. God is drawing attention to its significance in his relationship with Abraham. You are officially a man. This has been a test, and you have passed the test. It's an evaluative word, not a word of discovery. Otherwise, we get into serious heresy, not only the heresy of God's absence of knowledge of the future, but of the present as well. Jeremiah 7.31, did their child-sacrificing idolatry never occur to God as a possibility? Again, he said, nor did it come into my mind. Grudem solves this powerfully. (laughs) Another objection to the biblical teaching about God's omniscience has been brought from Jeremiah 7.31, where God refers to the horrible practices of parents who burned to death their own children in the sacrificial, sacrificial fires of the pagan god Baal, and said, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Does this mean that before the time of Jeremiah, God had never thought of the possibility that parents would sacrifice their own children? Certainly not, for that very practice had occurred a century earlier in the reigns of Ahaz, and there are texts to prove it, and Hosea, and God himself had forbidden the practice 800 years earlier under Moses. That is final proof of the fact that what we're doing here, what we're having here is a figure of speech. God is not saying literally, literally, I never even dreamed that you guys would do this. It's a figure of speech. The future may be open from our perspective, but God knows the future. He knows every word before we speak it. He knew the chair that you would sit in this morning. Now, there is tremendous hope And I know I'm going long, I'm sorry. Um, How could we have hope if open theism is right? If open theism is correct, God keeps making errors about the future. I I thought Adam and Eve were going to pan out, and then Genesis 6 had to destroy the whole world. I thought Saul was going to pan out. Didn't work out the way I thought, so David. I thought Israel was going to pan out. That didn't work, so come on, Gentiles. If we read the Bible that way, we're insulting the sovereignty of God and God's full awareness of history and his plans and purposes in history. The doctrine of God's omniscience is sweet comfort for his people. You you ask the question, the personal questions, right? This is where theology wants to land. 
am I going to make it home? And you think about God making promises that I will lose none of those who come to me. Not one of them will be lost. Is God saying that with absolute certainty about the future? Or is he saying that as an educated guess about what might happen as long as my free will gets along with it and cooperates? You know, God is sovereign over history. And I praise God that I grew up in a church that taught the foreknowledge of God, that God knows all things future. I wish I had never heard open theism. I wish I had never been sold that bill of goods in my 20s, but I think obviously God in his plan had a purpose for it, to humble me. Um, But I praise God that Sister Melinda sang his eyes on the sparrow. Because when my dad died at the age of 12, I needed to know God knew that was going to happen. I needed to know that I was still in his hand, that he was hemming me in behind and before, that he was aware of everything. He wasn't on his heels trying to repair things that had fallen apart. God was in full control. He fully knew me. He knew my tears, and he was present with me. And so the doctrine of God's omniscience is not heady, abstract stuff. It is gloriously good news for those of us who have come to trust this all-knowing God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you know what's going to happen today and tomorrow and a hundred years from now. I thank you for the comfort that gives us and the ability that it enables us to trust you because because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Why? Because I know who holds the future. We know who holds the future. We know who knows the future. We know the one, as we'll discuss in two weeks, who's sovereign over the future. Thank you, Lord, for your awesome knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen.